0: Good morning, welcome to Rising. We have another fantastic Wednesday show planned for you today. Brianna, what are we getting into?
1: Well, we'll, of course, be digging into all of the House Speaker chaos as the Kevin McCarthy uh, uh, kerfuffle embarrassingly fails to whip votes for the speakership multiple times last night. Joining us to get into all of it will be former Representative Justin Amash. You won't want to miss that interview. But first, journalist Matt Taibbi dropped a new round of the Twitter files yesterday afternoon. Got a little lost in the fray, perhaps. He reports that once Twitter began, quote, rolling over for Congress in 2017, the ending was inevitable, a former surrender to the intelligence community on content moderation.
0: Now, after facing growing public pressure from Democratic politicians to address alleged Russian bots on the platform, in 2017, Twitter executives created a Russia task force, which showed of the 2,500 full manual account reviews, 32 suspicious accounts were identified, and only 17 of those were in any way connected to Russia, and they weren't even sure they were part of the Russian government misinformation campaign. Even as Twitter prepared to change its ad policy and remove those accounts, which included RT and Sputnik, to, uh, to appease members of Congress, members of the Senate Intelligence Committee turned the heat up even more, reportedly leaking the larger base list of 2,700 accounts, along with other information to the mainstream media.
1: Later in 2020, the State Department would do the same by leaking a report named Russian Disinformation Apparatus Taking Advantage of Coronavirus Concerns. The report identified specific accounts which the government identified as Problematic, including one which speculated about lab origins of COVID. As 2020 progressed, requests to suspend undesired accounts began to escalate from all over, from the Treasury Department, the NSA, virtually every state, the Department of Housing and Human Services, the FBI, and even DHS.
0: They also received an astonishing variety of requests from officials asking for individuals they didn't like to be banned. Here, the Office for Democrat and House Intel Committee Chief Adam Schiff asked Twitter. To ban journalist Paul Sperry. Taibbi concludes it all led to the situation described by Michael Schellenberger two weeks ago, in which Twitter was paid $3 million essentially for being an overwhelmed subcontractor. Quote Twitter wasn't just paid for the amount of work they did for government, they were underpaid, according to Taibbi. Uh, So, this is more really interesting stuff from the Twitter files. And uh, I have a couple takeaways. One being, I think uh, Yoel Roth, the Twitter executive who was much maligned in the earlier dispatches, has kind of been wrongly thrown under the bus. I've now seen enough uh, communications between law enforcement and Yoel Roth and Yoel Roth and other employees where it's clear he's pushing back. It's clear he's frustrated with what the intelligence community community is asking. It's clear he's calling he's calling BS on it. And several times he's saying, "You're saying these are all Russian uh, uh, Russian accounts affiliated with the effort to to." Uh, to undermine our elections or right. the, the U.S. We're saying, no, they're not. We have no evidence right. of that. They're just like, and, and nobody's seeing this content. It doesn't matter. Stop. What are you talking about? Right. That's what Twitter is saying to the government. Right. And then the government steps it up and says, okay, you're not going to take this seriously? Well, we have some friends at Politico and, and other journalist outlets who would love to hear about how social media companies are not doing much to, to preserve the integrity of our elections.
1: How does that sound? Yeah, that's one of the craziest parts of this, that coercive aspect of it where they were using. Um, kind of discontent they could gin up in the media to put the target on some of these companies that up until that point hadn't really been scrutinized or for which there had been no real proof that they had been doing anything wrong. But once you get a couple of articles written about how maybe yes. there's
0: something... Are useful idiots in the press. Right. I'm using that ironically now. Yeah. They're saying, <laughs> um, uh, you know, Russia, Ru- Russia, 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 Russia. Any connection to Russia is just enough. You just have to print the word Russia. Yeah. Russia, Facebook, Russia, yeah. Twitter. Very bad.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm really glad you said that because, you know... Some of us have been saying since the beginning. It's not that when we were any heroes of these tech companies, they do plenty that is wrong. But it seems kind of evident from the beginning, these are not ideological decisions oftentimes that are being made. They are being pushed to make ideological yes, decisions by exactly. ideological partisans. But these are businesses, tech companies, who just want to have limited liability. They want to go about their business. They don't want to get caught up in all of this. They just want to make money. So there's a conversation to be had about protecting them from political influence. There's a conversation to be had about whether or not, because of the ideological pride of the people who work there, they're more or less likely to go along with certain political projects than others. I think that's all perfectly fair. But the fundamental issue here is that the The government keeps trying to influence these companies, and you see over and over again, we were just talking about this during break, companies like Facebook proposing changes to their policy, like doing end-to-end encryption, not especially because they care about the welfare, safety, and privacy of users, but because they want to be able to plausibly say to uh, law enforcement officials, hey— I can't actually turn over these emails. Hey, I can't actually turn over these messages. Hey, I can't actually rat on the woman who tried to order the abortion pill over the over the web. I don't want to be involved in these political debates at all. I want to be used by a diverse constituency of people across the world and just make money. So we got to get to the root of the problem and stop trying to act like as much as they're problematic these these figureheads like Uh, Jack or Zuckerberg or whomever are the root of the problem.
0: Yes, and we we should mention the legislative part of the push as well. So they're getting pressure from law enforcement, from the FBI, from government intelligence services, who are then leaking to the media to put additional pressure, the negative publicity— at a time when they're preparing to be—the uh, the legislature, Dems, Republicans too, they're preparing to drag them before Congress. I believe it was Senator Mark Warner was the one who was mentioned in, in this batch of Twitter files. I'd have to double-check who it was. But a prominent Democratic senator who was just— Invading over and over again against Twitter because of the uh, the Russia connection, because of the the safety of our elections, and and being very explicit about well, this is why we need new regulation. This is why this is not good enough. This is why you can't just be allowed to do your own thing because you're allowing all this you know, Russian propaganda. What he's saying is, is false. It's not true. Those things are not connected to Russia. It's, it, it, it had very little effect on, on election. It's not even necessarily illegitimate. Like, they're allowed to say what they think. And it, the, the extent to which it's like mind control from Russia is just so overstated. It's comical at this point. And, I, you know, I'm not saying anything you don't know or our audience doesn't know. We've talked about it a lot. But that's what the, the Democrats in Congress were saying that— The intelligence – so they're threatening that. The intelligence officials are saying, well, here's the people you need to take down, and we're going to smear you in the media, which will then add more additional fuel to the fire for the Congress creating a firestorm over this. You see why eventually, over time, they just start saying – Okay, what do you want us to take down? Fine. Yeah. What's next?
1: Yeah. And then they're overwhelmed with requests. (laughs) And then they're doing little else. The the legal aspect of this, as someone who did practice corporate law for seven years and knows that most of my workload was reviewing documents, like I, I understand the optics of Twitter taking money to do these tasks, and there are some perverse incentives there. At the same time, That is literally why so many law firms are getting paid point blank, period. Your entire job is reviewing documents, and they basically uh, made Twitter do the exact same kind of uh, internal review. That is the sum total of what law firm work actually is. So I'm not surprised that it's an incredibly time-consuming process. It's an incredibly expensive process. It's a detail-oriented process that, you know, you can't really punt to uh, juniors very easily. And they were really put in— why the bind? If the government is going to require that kind of review, they either have to take it upon themselves or compensate people for it. And, and this, is, this is the last piece of this puzzle, and I mentioned this yesterday. I do think that there is value in reviewing all of these documents. And it is putting a high burden on the folks who are administering the Twitter files to be just a small handful of journalists, three, four, five people who are doing that and overlooking what must be hundreds of thousands of pages of emails over the course of the year. Mm-hmm. So I really do hope at some point there is a choice to open up this catalog the same way that we had access to the Podesta files and were able to see all sorts of machinations going on with Hillary Clinton in 2016 and, and efforts to the press. It seems like there's a much more sophisticated operation going on at this point because of the influence of social media. And it is terrifying to think where well, this could go next if we don't put the kibosh on it and there isn't some real response to what these Twitter files have revealed now.
0: I would love to ask Joel Roth or, or someone who is in a position like him, if they could do it again, what uh-huh. would they do differently? Would they... uh, Maybe they would say, we would tell the FBI to go to hell. We would say, screw all you. Or
1: whistleblow. Maybe they would leak the emails and get this all over with a long time ago. But they probably assumed
0: a greater degree of competence on the part of law enforcement officials than was warranted. That's a lesson Republicans have had to learn. That's a lesson everybody has (laughs) to learn. (laughs) While we're still anxiously awaiting the release of the Fauci files, which Elon Musk teased last week, rising host Bacha Ungar Sargon spoke to Fox Business about the upcoming drop. Let's watch that.
2: I definitely want to know more about the, you know,
3: the ways in which Twitter and Dr. Fauci intersected. Um, I think there was a lot of misdirection,
4: a lot of very bad advice coming out of Dr. Fauci's office, and I think that there was a real failure of introspection. So I'm looking forward to seeing what was there. I do have to say, I find it very
3: interesting that Elon Musk is not more interested in where COVID came from. He's not more
1: interested in China's role in this pandemic that killed millions and millions and millions of Americans. You know, for all of his tweeting and all of this, you know, disclosed this disclose that? He never accidentally says anything negative about the CCP. And we know that that's because his entire supply chain is in China. And so he is very careful not to offend China. And I think that that really weakens his position as, you know, this moral arbiter of truth and free speech and so forth.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm glad Bacha keeps making that point.
1: It's a solid argument. Look, I've noticed a trend, Robbie, where if we do a segment that is at all critical of Elon Musk just reporting on the fact of his Tesla stock price going down, some ideological inconsistencies with the way that he's been pursuing this um, free speech absolutist approach on the platform, a lot of folks in our audience aren't big fans. They Mm. they don't really like it. I've noticed that. Yeah, I, they, they don't seem to—they don't respond well in the comments, and they don't tend to even click on articles that kind of signal out, out front, we're going to say something kind of negative about Elon Musk. But I think it's important because, like it or not, the principles that he was articulating, I think, were good ones, and ones that I think a lot of folks on the left could get behind. The fact of the censorship of accounts, we know hurt the left as well. When we're talking about Russiagate and who it hurt, we know that— You know, Bernie Sanders was accused of uh, having Russia at his back uh, when he won the Nevada primary because it was such a threat to the Democratic establishment. I, you know—probably you as well—have been called a Putin puppet more times than I could count. I'm practically going to get the tattoo at this point. So you know, these things were important to pursue, and that's why I think it is so important for people like Bhatia to be raising these inconsistencies and say, if you really care about these principles, don't sully them by basically prioritizing your personal economic interests. over what should be legitimate free speech uh, concerns that should extend to your manufacturing, the the home of your manufacturing enterprises in China as well.
0: Mm. Well, I think we're going to hear more on that subject from Baccia later this week, and we'll have more rising right after this. What's on your radar, Brianna?
1: Robbie, today's is a doozy. Yesterday, for the first time in a hundred years, the House majority couldn't decide on a speaker. In three rounds of voting, prospective leader Representative Kevin McCarthy fell short of the 218 votes needed to secure the speakership spot, losing votes rather than gaining them as the day wore on. Because the Republicans hold a narrow majority in the House, McCarthy can only lose about four of his own members. And as of the third round of voting, he was 16 votes short of 218. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio clinched 20 votes by the end of the day after consolidation in the third round. But despite the historically rare nature of a failed speakership vote, yesterday was far from unexpected. First, because a vocal anti-McCarthy faction has been signaling its intent to not vote for McCarthy without significant concessions for weeks, as we've covered on this show. Second, because as many progressives know, we've been here before. In 2021, a movement known as Force the Vote advocated for progressives in the House to do precisely what this rogue faction of Republicans are doing now. But to do so, because uh, they could use their leverage to fight for the people. They declined to do so. Now, Republicans are showing how much power coalition politics can, in fact, garner. And despite major coping on social media with selfies and lame gags about eating popcorn from the left while Republicans flail, it's so-called progressives who have egg on their face right now. The fact is that the Roe Republican plan to secure concessions from the Republican establishment is working. For example, McCarthy has agreed to a rule that would make it easier to oust a sitting speaker. The compromise package offered by McCarthy also includes a cut-go rule that would require any spending increases to be offset by cuts and mandatory spending. Note that military, military spending, of course, is Generally exempt from these budget wars, there's never any how will we pay for it when we're talking about funding Ukraine, only when we're cutting your Medicare benefits or pity-pinching over the cost of your insulin. But other asks include reopening the Capitol and getting rid of pandemic protocols. I don't want to spend too much time in the weeds here. What you need to know is this, a political faction of the Republican Party that objects to Kevin McCarthy on the admittedly vague grounds they've offered— have identified that they, in fact, have real leverage to demand basically whatever they want. And the Republican establishment can't do anything about it. Now, some critics say this is stupid because the rogue Republicans have no plan for an alternative speaker and that it's highly unlikely that Jim Jordan could possibly whip enough votes to present a credible challenge to McCarthy. Left establishment toadies made a similar argument in 2021, saying that the plan wasn't feasible absent a viable speaker candidate in the alternative to Nancy Pelosi. This week's events prove how idiotic that contention really was. The Republican defectors didn't need a specific alternative candidate to gum up the works. As long as they pick someone, anyone not named Kevin McCarthy, Republicans are stuck in limbo. Unless 29 Democrats walk or vote present, giving McCarthy a majority, or eleven Republicans walk or vote present, giving, giving Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries a majority, Republicans are forced to negotiate for as long as it takes. Now the longest speaker vote ever in the in 1856. Took two months and 133 rounds of voting, which puts yesterday's three rounds in some perspective. And during that historical vote, which featured violent fist fights and a caning between congressmen, legislating came to a standstill. As Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is firmly in the pro-McCarthy camp, pointed out, we can't even swear in as members of Congress until we elect a speaker. We can't form committees until we elect a speaker. We can't investigate anything until we have a speaker. Heavens to Betsy, that sounds a lot like leverage to me. And isn't that the point? The entire Republican agenda is now in the hands of a handful of opportunistic Congress members, and Republicans are not quite sure what to do about it. Some McCarthy supporters are trying to paint this force the vote effort as a self-interested hostage-taking mission, ginning up antagonism against the rogue Republicans in the public eye and ultimately in their districts where they probably hope. They feel it the most. Here's Representative Dan Crenshaw on Fox News yesterday.
3: Republicans have been waiting years for this opportunity to take over the House. And so when the rest of the country looks at how Republicans are handling day one, they can't unite. They can't come together. it's it's day one and they can't agree already. Yeah, that's a shame. It makes us look foolish. (laughs) If I didn't know any better, it's like the Democrats paid these people off. let's pay them off. Let's make it look like the Republicans can't govern and don't deserve any gavels whatsoever. That's what it makes it look like. Again, their demands are foolish. Their demands are inside baseball procedural issues. That's what they are. Their demands are things that the average American doesn't care about at all. The average American cares about defunding 87,000 IRS agents. That's actually what's going to be on the floor today if McCarthy gets 218. Because then we can actually start doing business. That's the first bill we're going to vote on. You know what's going to be right up after that? It's going to be bills on border security. It's going to be bills on making our economy more resilient and reducing inflation. It's going to be the things that people actually care about. The things that they want, the things that they're demanding to offer their votes to McCarthy are things that nobody cares about. Right. And look, nobody calls my office and says, you have to, this is my biggest priority. You've got to get rid of Kevin McCarthy.
1: Now, in that clip, Crenshaw is articulating what has become a very common refrain for Republicans that these 20 or so obstructionists are standing in the way of substantive policy for the sake of administrative asks that don't matter to the voting public. He cites Republican plans to defund the IRS and secure the border as priorities that are getting stalled and jokes that it's almost as if the Democrats paid Republicans to act this foolishly. He goes on to say that these rogue Republicans have no plan. And as I listen to him, I can't help but think, my God, he sounds an awful lot like establishment Democrats. Let me explain. In 2020, the situation was reversed. Democrats had a small majority in the House, such that a handful of progressives, squad members alone, had enough votes to hold up Nancy Pelosi's nomination to lead the House. There were plenty of reasons, by the way, to do so. For one, AOC had previously gestured to the fact that she found it incredible that Pelosi had never faced a real speakership challenge in all her years. Moreover, we were at the start of a COVID pandemic and at the tail end of a progressive presidential campaign that delivered unprecedented public support for Medicare for all along with other progressive policies. Did Bernie's loss mean that the movement representing a majority of Americans was supposed to die? And during a pandemic at that? Since Trump was still president, Democrats were still pretending to care about COVID deaths. And before the vaccines, when even young and healthy people were finding themselves hospitalized or even dying from COVID, there was genuine energy around using the public health crisis as a springboard for improving our public health system, which by the way, is the most expensive in the world, despite yielding worse results than peer nations. Disgruntled progressives who made up a significant part of the Democratic Party base had dutifully voted for Biden, despite warnings from folks like myself who said that doing so without establishing some conditions would mean that Biden would ultimately betray most, if not all, of his campaign promises. And in the weeks after the election, progressive YouTube Politico and comedian Jimmy Dore floated a simple idea, to get something in return for those very progressive voters, an idea, in fact, that he gleaned from the DSA's own handbook. That is, you guessed it, force the vote. Progressive squad members could leverage their speakership vote to extract concessions from Nancy Pelosi. Now, unlike Republicans now, the left's asks were to be substantive, not just procedural. One key ask was a vote on Medicare for All, which was intended to keep the fight alive and draw contrast between Democrats' claims that they want to improve health care for Americans and the fact that they repeatedly kill Medicare for all legislation as quickly as they receive money from the pharmaceutical industry. If you want to understand why the vote for Medicare for all was such an important ask, just look at what's happened over the last two years. Look at how California, with its Democratic supermajority legislature, killed a statewide Medicare for all bill or Consider how silent all of the squad members have been about Medicare for All since the end of the Bernie campaign. Did 68,000 people a year stop dying from a lack of health insurance, or did it just become uncool to talk about it now that we're outside of a fundraising cycle? Now, some of us, fearful that exactly this would happen, rallied over the holidays in 2020, staffing phone trees and calling progressive Congress members furiously about the plan and even planning rallies. As left media figures debated the merits of the plan, people like David Sirota offered constructive additions to the ask, including a suggestion that Pelosi be forced to oust corporate Democrat Richie Neal from the Ways and Means Committee, where he was poised to stop progress on health care reform. What should be clear is the specifics of the ask were much less important than the following fact— Nancy Pelosi was obviously an enemy to the left and should not have been voted for without gaining something significant in return. After AOC's first notable day in Congress, during which she protested with climate activists in Pelosi's office, the longtime speaker made quick work of bullying the squad members into submission. An iron fist and a Gucci glove is how Politico described Pelosi once. And over the course of their first two years in Congress, the squad members largely submitted to said fist. But here, here was an opportunity to draw attention to the corruption that paid for that proverbial Gucci glove. The squad members could have demanded important committee assignments. As the current rebel Republicans have done, they could have forced a vote on on banning stock trading by Congress members. After all, Pelosi's personal wealth has ballooned during her decades in office, widely out of proportion to her congressional salary. This this is a woman who famously defended congressional stock trading despite the clear conflict of interest and insider knowledge Congress members possess. This is a woman who just presided over the quiet death of a bill to end congressional stock trading, one that was arguably designed to fail in the first place. But instead of choosing that moment to fight— To highlight the corruption of the Democratic Party and to lead a genuine populist movement that stood a chance of waking people up to the limitations of the two party duopoly, something curious happened. A call seemed to go out to leading figures in the progressive media that they should drop Force the Vote. Although I first heard of the idea from Sam Seder, host of the YouTube show Majority Report, who said he supported Jimmy Dore's idea despite having a long-standing feud with Jimmy. He quickly changed his tune, alluding to a call he'd received that discouraged this approach, a call from whom we could only guess. The legacy left media all quickly turned against the idea with large accounts like the Young Turks, Majority Report, and others spreading outright misinformation about the risks of what might happen if the squad declined to vote for Nancy Pelosi. They repeatedly claimed wrongly that Kevin McCarthy would become Speaker of the House by default. Of course, as we all saw yesterday and today, that was never true. Hakeem Jeffries is not magically Speaker of the House, despite earning more votes in the first count than McCarthy did yesterday. You need a majority of the House, not just a bare majority, to be Speaker. And yet the lie was so pervasive that Pramila Jayapal herself lied directly to former rising host uh, Ryan Grimm's face when he asked her During an interview, why she voted for Nancy Pelosi without demanding real concessions.
3: Now, there were some pundits and left-wing media personalities ahead of this vote who were urging you guys, urging the CPC, to use the vote for Speaker as leverage to extract a floor vote on Medicare for All. Why why didn't the CPC end up taking that particular route?
2: Well, I'm sympathetic, obviously, as the lead sponsor of the bill, to people who are frustrated that we have not moved to a single-payer system yet. But um, the reality is that this is a very slim margin. The vote for Speaker was between Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi. And throwing the entire chamber into chaos would have been very detrimental for the Electoral College vote and everything else.
1: I later confronted Ryan about his failure to push back against Paul's claim on my podcast. And we had a constructive conversation about how things could have been handled differently. But... Since squad members rarely open themselves up to questioning from anyone in progressive media outside of Ryan Graham at The Intercept, that missed opportunity was one that carried the lie that Kevin McCarthy could become Speaker if Democrats forced the vote far and wide. Sam Seder was one of the most vocal opponents to force the vote after, of course, he supported it. And following a three-hour debate with me on my podcast, it was incredibly demoralizing to hear that he— did not understand the basic facts of how the congressional vote even worked. I recommend everyone go and listen to that debate at Bad Faith if you haven't watched it already. Now, all of this was as obvious as the nose on my face 2 years ago. But major left media figures like Sam have been loud and wrong about this for years without any apology. This issue became the source of a major fissure in left politics. For years, I've been the subject of personal attacks from opponents of force the vote. Sam, for one, argued after a debate, which ended on a friendly note that I, quote, yelled at him for three hours while Cheng Uger referred to me as a fake leftist just six months or so ago, in part because of my advocacy for force the vote and my perceived alliance with Jimmy Dore, who shared my support of this particular tactic. Now, of course, both the left media and mainstream media are perfectly clear on how all this works now. Now that there's no pressure on progressives to actually be adversarial to the Democratic Party, outside, of course, wearing tax-the-rich sweatshirts, now they get it. But while Democrats are bending over backward to pretend that the the force-the-vote strategy is emblematic of a Republican Party in disarray, what this moment really shows is how fully controlled by the corporate Democratic Party progressive Democrats really are. What the rogue Republicans are fighting for now is not what I would have asked for. But the point is that progressives in 2021 could have asked for anything. My former colleague Ryan Grimm, along with progressives like AOC and Pramila Jayapal, bragged back then about securing relatively minor procedural changes like payCO exemptions. They lauded these gains so much you would have thought that Pago was Esperanto for student debt cancellation, a $15 minimum wage, or a classic Oprah car giveaway. <laughs> In 2021, these progressives celebrated wins much smaller than the wins already secured by the Republican holdouts this week. But now they're taking smug selfies from the House floor, as though McCarthy's concessions aren't proof that they gave up an enormous amount of leverage without a fight two years ago. And for what? What happened after they decided to play the game and make nice with Mama Bear? AOC tweeted that she wouldn't be forcing the vote because she was negotiating on the inside for committee appointments and was reserving leverage to fight for a $15 minimum wage. But how did that go, AOC? Biden and the corporate Dems killed the $15 minimum wage when Schumer stripped it from must-pass COVID legislation that only needed a bare majority to pass, converting a 51-vote issue into a filibuster-proof vote. And it was reported that Pramila Jayapal whipped votes to make sure the progressives didn't threaten to vote down the COVID relief bill in protest. I guess that sort of move is only allowed if you're mansion or cinema fighting for corporations, not progressives fighting for the people. Moreover, squad members ended up with even worse committee assignments than they'd had the previous year. Katie Porter was kicked off the Financial Services Committee reportedly because her popular whiteboard presentations exposing corporate corruption made it tougher for committee chair Maxine Waters to do the real work of the Financial Services Committee. That is fundraising from Wall Street. And this is what is so absolutely disappointing about progressives. It's why so many people who were once willing to fight with Bernie are no longer willing to engage in electoral politics at all. It has become clear that as performative and goofy as some of the right posturing is right now, people like Matt Gates are still willing to demonstrate more fight against the establishment of their own party than squad members who once claimed that they'd rather be one-term Congress members than forego their principles.
4: Take a listen. They, humble to a fault maybe the right person for the job of speaker of the house isn't someone who wants it so bad maybe the right person for the job of speaker of the house isn't someone who has sold shares of themselves for more than a decade to get it maybe Jim Jordan is the right person for Speaker of the House because he is not beholden to the lobbyists and special interests who have corrupted this place and corrupted this nation under the leadership of both Republicans and Democrats.
1: Now, Matt Gates was talking about Kevin McCarthy there, but he easily could have been talking about Nancy Pelosi. The difference is you won't hear a peep out of the squad about Nancy Pelosi's corruption, her unpopularity. Or the fact that after a 30-year reign, she's allowed to choose her own successor without any real contest occurring whatsoever, even from the progressive flank. We're learning today that force the vote works. It comes with media backlash, but it is in fact an effective mechanism that can be used to get a whole range of important concessions and deliver for the people if people choose. That being the case, every single person who opposed it in 2021 has to answer the question. Was bending the knee really worth it? So I know that's a lot, Robbie, but (laughs) this this is my this is my bugaboo, and it is really cringe for me to watch progressives as they are getting a front row seat to how much they could have tried to wrest from Pelosi two years ago in this exact same situation. For them to be smug and mocking of what's going on right now, instead of realizing that this could have been power, this was power that they in fact held in their hands and they just squandered. 100%.
0: One hundred percent. The smugness is so uncalled for. It's it's telling that they don't understand how obnoxious that smugness is to the people who voted the squad members in. The mainstream media is smug about this because they love the popcorn dot gif of it all, mm-hmm. and and your AOC types are playing into that now because they're captured by it. Um, It is wild. Uh, Yeah. Republicans are doing what what you wanted your side to do for so long. That said, the difference is I don't actually believe that there's much at stake policy-wise here. It sounds like there was something at stake policy-wise on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, this is all personal. This is a clash of personalities, people who don't like Kevin McCarthy— I don't believe that that there's much difference between Kev- if any difference between Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, I completely substantively. Agree. May, they have different personalities. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to bat for Kevin McCarthy right now, and she just laid into uh, Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and Chip Roy and a bunch of other people. And I'm listening to her, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've indicated that I'm not necessarily a fan of Marjorie Taylor Greene. But I'm listening to her, and everything she says is 100% correct. Yeah. She's like, they're all hypocrites. Right. Matt Gates supported Paul Ryan. Chip Roy didn't go far enough in terms of MAGA direction regarding January 6. Boebert took money. Yeah, it's all. They were all. So, so now to object. But they weren't doing—they're they're, they're not—what she's pointing out is none of them are perfect. So right. you're saying Kevin McCarthy's not perfect. None of you are perfect. Right. And at this point, there's no—so anyway, it's—but yeah. it's wild. Yeah,
1: I completely <laughs> agree. The ideological priors are all over the place. I, I don't think—the problem isn't not having a plan for an alternative mm-hmm. speaker. The problem is not having a plan for what you want to actually get out of this, so that the people you're negotiating with have a feeling that there's an end point to this and that it is worth coming to the negotiating table. That being said, Democrats could have chosen— Anything. Progressives had a long laundry list of things that they had basically given up as soon as Joe Biden, who was perhaps the most conservative person in the Democratic Party, was able to consolidate the moderates and win. And instead of making any of those demands, even small ones like, hey, what if we have an immediate uh, sign... sign, uh, student debt cancellation immediately, since that's something that can be done by executive order. Had Biden done that, wouldn't have given the opening for the courts to challenge in the way that they've done, and he'd be in a very different posture on a major policy promise that he made in 2020. They chose to do nothing and to brag about things like PAYGO maneuvers uh, and the anticipated uh, uh, seats that they would get on various committees that never came through, and set those little things up as important at the same time that they're dismissing significant concessions that these holdout Republicans have already made. I can't get over it. There, there's a lot of p- backlash, I want to say. The media backlash is real, and that was completely anticipated by the people who were pushing force the vote back in 2021. But the question is, is it worth it to you to help to try to make the public understand how much they're getting screwed over by corporate Democrats and Republicans alike? Mm,
0: very interesting. All right, well, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. Idaho murder suspect 28-year-old Brian Koberger was identified with the help of a direct-to-consumer genetics test like that of 23andMe, if not that company specifically. This method, genetic genealogy, has become a popular technique among law enforcement. You you may remember it being used to catch the Golden State Killer, where investigators ran DNA that had been found at a crime scene and used it to match with familial DNA found through these genetic tests.
1: And while many applaud the suspect's capture, of course, data privacy experts are raising red flags. Podcaster Clint Russell points out this sentiment, tweeting, Idaho mass murderer got caught because his parents had done 23 and me style DNA tests. They then matched that to evidence at the scene. Glad he's caught, very, very disturbed that the government can use that data, and no one seems to care. Yeah, so this
0: is very interesting. Uh, I, I, so I've heard, I'm seeing on social media some talk that it was 23andMe. We don't know if it's that company or something else. But what it sounds like is uh, not actually the suspect, Koberger, but maybe a family member, someone, used a service like 23andMe to compile their genetic profile, and then some DNA found at the crime scene. It could, it could have been a, a, a hair, a piece of hair, or something else, piece of skin. Uh, They had that, and then they wouldn't know who that was because Brian Koberger isn't in the criminal database, but they could find, because they have access, I guess, to some of these uh, genetic testing companies' databases, so they're able to narrow it down to say, okay, well— look at everyone in that family and they see oh actually there's a member of that family or someone yeah. with a genetic similarity who lives in that area and oh they had been seen in the same location or something so then it they, goes from they there they drive
1: the white sedan yeah right. it, look some people might say if you haven't done anything wrong what's the problem yeah. but i don't know i I had to watch Gattaca in my eighth grade science class. I have
0: not seen Gattaca. Okay,
1: well, (laughs) to update you on this 20-year-old movie, Robbie, I mean, the point is that, you know, it's in a future society where the fact of your DNA being on file is used to prevent you from going certain places, having certain kinds of jobs. It's a world where a lot of people are genetically modified, and people who have those genetic modifications get more privileges than people who have their regular normie DNA. And obviously, we're not in Gattaca. We're nowhere close to that um, reality. But the fact that DNA and biometrics are in, 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 increasingly taken from us. We give up our eye scan at the airport. We, we do a finger pad to sign into the gym in our buildings, these kinds of things. This stuff is on file. And the day that we do take a dystopian turn, which seems likely, especially as we cover these stories about Amazon Ring ca- cameras and those kinds mm-hmm. of things, the way they're going to get us is by offering us convenience. They're going to say... Give us your information freely. We'll tell you about your genealogy. We'll help tell you if a package has been stolen, et cetera. And it's going to be whiplash when we realize exactly what we've given up in terms of privacy and our our rights to not be on the grid.
0: I think it's concerning. I also think it's, frankly, inevitable. And there's not a lot we can do to prevent it. Um, Well, what do
1: you think about what they've done in Europe with respect to trying to do more to protect privacy rights? The right right to be forgotten on the internet is something that they've worked to establish in Europe.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I've said this before on the show. uh, In the in the speech privacy trade off, we go a little harder on protections for speech, and they go a little harder on protections for privacy. You couldn't have something like the uh, right to be forgotten law in the U.S., frankly, because it would violate the First Amendment. You couldn't. The First Amendment would. uh, The Supreme Court would say that their interpretation of the First Amendment is that the government can't obligate a company to, to get rid of, a, a, a media company to get rid of speech or information about someone, um, even just because they want to. I'm not saying that's good or bad. It's it's just kind of the, the reality here, which is why I talk about the inevitability of it. I, I you know, I, I do think privacy is a very important value, and it would be, I, I actually, I think some of the, just about the only laws I actually um a uh, favor to m- maybe modify exactly what the regulations we have with regard to the internet are have to do with um, increasing privacy around photos and information that can e- end up in other people's. Uh, it, I, I actually think there should be more obligation on tech companies to take down content that is posted by a third party yeah. that's yours, and they should There's not. And right now they Yeah, like, there are yeah, these, these Those I, I do think are are pretty. And, and compelling. we can make choices.
1: The First Amendment yeah. exists. We also can make choices as a society about exceptions to it, limitations to it, as we decide as a society. It's not a tablet that's come down from God, you know, and there are a lot of things that exist now that didn't exist when the founding fathers were thinking this stuff up. I think it's worth having a conversation as as a society about whether we want to have this kind of more absolutist position that we're in. We have carved out various privacy rights outside of the constitutional context in Supreme Court jurisprudence. This recent decision in Dobbs was a big blow to one of the privacy rights that's been established by the courts. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, marriage equality, interracial marriage, mm-hmm. a lot of these other kind of cases, of the right to contraceptive, to not having the police bang down your door and look to see if you're, you're using a condom that's been outlawed in the state or doing a sodomy that's outlawed in the state, we're all based on someone's right to privacy. So we have decided, outside of the Constitution that that stuff is important. The question is, are we going to be ahead of the ball in getting some legislation on the books that protects us before it's late? You know,
0: day? that reminds me of, uh, and, and perhaps we should discuss this in, in greater detail for its own segment, but Louisiana has a new law uh, aimed at restricting uh, adolescents' access to pornography. Have mm. you heard about this? Oh, you have to put, put in reco- your,
1: credit, your driver's, driver's license? license?
0: You're going to have to put in a driver's license to prove you're of an age, age to be allowed to consume pornography. And this, you know, this is a law being celebrated by social conservatives being being foisted on us by Republicans. I don't know. That sounds that sounds concerning. You want to you want to type in your driver's license. Give that to every yeah. website on the planet. It's I don't not know giving freedom,
1: Republicans. It's, I don't know it's, it's about not, that. It's not serving freedom.
0: <laughs> well, the Federalist Avita Duffy Alfonso writes that during the early years of social media, no one could have predicted the kinds of power big tech companies would wield over freedom of expression. Nor could we have imagined the sinister collusion between federal agencies and social media companies to silence political enemies of the left, engage in government psychological operations, and interfere in elections. Just as social media sites have been, DNA profiling will likely be abused in ways we are not yet aware of, uh, and, and there will be cooperation. That's the other yeah. thing. That's what we're really seeing, and, yeah. and is alluded to there. The the begrudging at first resistance, then begrudging cooperation, then full cooperation that we've seen from Twitter as a result of these Twitter files. Yeah. Same thing that could happen with Twenty Three and Me.
1: It's worth noting also that the lack of transparency means that a lot of these technologies are proven over time to not actually even do the thing that law enforcement says that they do. So, for example, cell tower information has been used to convict any number of people putting uh, you know alleged perpetrators in the scene of the crime. But over the years, we've realized that that information is really inconsistent, especially in cities that are so densely populated. You have like thousands and millions of people in a square block radius and to juries you see some science you see an expert saying oh there was a cell phone that pinged in this area let's lock them up for good but who knows what's going on who knows how legitimate the the DNA collections are in these cases yeah. how much you know there were, there were some cases of some of these um, uh, DNA testing companies for dogs you know to see if you actually got a peer breed or not just wantonly sending whatever result in I the world back I think my these
0: are part Maltese <laughs>
1: Well, look, how could you even really know? ever know? <laughs> like, this is, this is the thing. So we should be also not so credulous mm. about the efficacy of this technology in the first place.
0: Well, I promise to be an informed juror if <laughs> I am picked. In <laughs> Jersey, I don't expect to be. And we'll do
1: everything I can to get out you of it so
0: that I picked, can be. Robbie. What I really want to do is get back to work on the All following right. Monday. So I'm going to try to get out of it. All right. But,
1: well, we'll, uh, we'll miss you either way. <laughs> but we respect your civil responsibilities as well.
0: <laughs> More rising after this. Stay with us. The chaotic vote for the next Speaker of the House has ignited criticisms of the overall process as overly partisan. Former Michigan Congressman Justin Amash tweeted, I'm not a current member of Congress, but I do know what's at stake, and I'd gladly serve as Speaker of the House for one term to show people the kind of legislative body we can have if someone at the top actually cares about involving every representative in the work of legislating. Representative Amash joins us now in the rising studio to discuss all of this. So glad to have you with us. Thanks so much. So what are your views on what we're seeing? As we're speaking, (laughs) they are voting right now. Representative Chip Roy nominated uh, Byron Donalds. Uh, This is sort of the the anti-McCarthy candidate for this vote. Um, What do you make of what's happening?
5: Well, I think this is representative government. And for people on the left who talk about democracy all the time, this is what we're seeing. This is how it's Mm -hmm. supposed to work. We're supposed to go and duke it out fight each other over the issues. And in this case, the issue is who's going to be Speaker of the House. And it's supposed to take a little while. I don't understand why we always expect outcomes to happen instantly. Mm -hmm. And I see that from people in the media all the time saying like, this is an outrage, this is chaotic, et cetera, but this is how it's supposed to work.
1: Yeah, so people have pointed out that this is relatively unprecedented. The last time this happened was 100 years ago, but in days and years past, we have had instances back in, I think, 1856 where there were 133 rounds of voting, which again puts you know a couple of days of voting into real perspective. And as a consequence, there are opportunities to get concessions, change rules, debate issues of of real importance. Chip Roy was just saying on the floor that part of the issue... is that they want to change rules so that we can have more actual debates instead of having um, basically the speaker being able to say, we're going to keep this out of public discussion uh, altogether, despite being issues that are very popular for the people. So I I want to know what your take is. Do you think this is fundamentally a good move by these 20 or so uh, dissident Republicans to be dissidents in this moment?
5: Yes, absolutely. Now, I can't speak to their individual motives. Each person has their own motive for why they might be doing what they're doing. But the House is fundamentally broken. It's been broken for a long time. We haven't had a vote, an amendment vote, from the House floor freely offered since 2016, where a member can just go to the House floor and offer an amendment without having the speaker basically pre-screen it and say it's okay. That's not democracy. That's not representative government. And I don't know why people cheerlead that kind of stuff, where the, the system just doesn't work at all. We should want our members to go down there and have vigorous debate, and um, we want them to read the bills. It's outrageous that a 5,000-page bill might come to the floor and people are given one day. And then I'll always hear these excuses by people on Twitter saying, well, they've had that um, legislation out there for months, and it's just been in different pieces of legislation, and now it's all been combined." Do you expect members of Congress to read every single piece of legislation (laughs) out there with the expectation that maybe it will be thrown into an omnibus at the end of the year? Like, I'm going to read 10,000 bills because maybe 10 of them will end up in an omnibus? It doesn't make any sense. You have to give people time after you know what's in the bill.
0: So you were in Congress as a Republican Um, during your last term. You switched and became uh, the first Libertarian member of Congress. You were supportive of efforts uh, to oust uh, Speaker Boehner uh, when that happened. Now, I know from conversations we've had that you ended up not liking how Paul Ryan governed the House. Uh, you, you, I think you've actually said it was it was not, not only not an improvement, it was worse.
5: Yeah. I mean, Speaker Boehner seems like a, a great <laughs> Democrat, I mean, in the small d sense, compared to what we've seen from Paul Ryan and Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, all the people touting Nancy Pelosi in the past w- few weeks, they've had all these celebrations of Nancy Pelosi. She completely shut down the democratic process she completely shut out everyone Now, on the democratic side they don't complain about it as much like the you see the members of congress will kind of just suck it up and accept it Mm -hmm. whereas on the republican side you see more pushback but it's really a shame and we need a speaker who will open up the entire process let everyone participate it should be a discovery process we should discover the outcomes they shouldn't be given to us it shouldn't be some person at the top saying Here's a piece of legislation. This is it. Take it or leave it. Yes or no. And if you vote no, I'm booting you off the committees or I'm going to tell people not to send you money or I'm going to deny you a chairmanship. It shouldn't work like that. It should be an open, deliberative process.
1: I think that's a, such a good point, because one of the things the public is learning right now is how much beyond, behind the scenes coercion goes on. To prevent people from doing things like this, to punish people who step out of line, outside uh, of what the establishment parties want to do, the way that uh, speakership is—sorry, uh, that the leadership positions on these committees are brokered uh, in a way that I think didn't work out well for progressives last time who bent the knee to Nancy Pelosi, as we've discussed, said they were holding out for good uh, committee positions, said they were holding out for the fight for $15 minimum wage, and saw all of those hopes and dreams go out the window immediately because they had preemptively given up their leverage. So I want to ask if you've, you've tweeted putting yourself out there as someone who could conceivably be a third-party, neutral uh, speaker—of course, you don't have to be in Congress to actually be Speaker of the House—what do you identify as the fundamental problems here of vicinity, uh in Congress? Congress, the inability for Congress to get things done that actually reflects the will of pluralities of Americans. And what would you hope to bring to the table?
5: Well, the, the fundamental problem is the centralization of power, and it's been uh, creeping in that direction over the years. And now we fundamentally have a speaker that has almost ultimate power. Mm-hmm. The speaker controls most of the money. The speaker controls the committee assignments. The speaker controls the chairmanships. The speaker controls what gets to the floor. The speaker controls the amendments. Mm-hmm. And as the speaker gets stronger, the speaker gets stronger, because lobbyists and others know that the speaker has all of this power. And so more money comes into the speaker's office and less goes out to the individual members. So now you have a speaker that controls everything completely. We need to decentralize the process. What I would like to do as speaker is open up the entire place. Everyone should be able to participate. People on the left should be able to participate. People on the right should be able to participate. People used to think that what the Freedom Caucus was about was just helping conservatives. I was one of the founding members of the Freedom Caucus, and I can't speak for how it operates now, okay? I'm not, I'm not trying to defend anything it's done over the past several years. But what I can say is the the Freedom Caucus was founded with the idea of opening up the House for everyone, allowing everyone to participate. I want AOC to be able to offer amendments. I want Ilhan Omar to be able to offer amendments because they're part of the representative process too. Marjorie Taylor Greene should be able to offer amendments. I know a lot of people at home might not like these individual members, but this is the way our system works. People in these districts elected these members. They should be able to participate just like anyone else. And that means a lot of so-called moderate members participating and also people on the far right and far left and everyone in between. Everyone should be part of it.
0: And and occasionally there are policy commonalities between all these people. To the extent we're really, the policy we're really concentrated on right now, the the, the highest one at stake seems to be funding for Ukraine, or is one that's been mentioned. Representative Chip Roy mentioned it uh, as as why he's supporting uh, Byron Donalds. It's something that many uh, progressive people on the left, many libertarian Republicans, many very Trumpian Republicans are very concerned about an unlimited commitment to funding this ever. Not that we're, not, we're unsympathetic to Ukraine. It's not about that at all. But it's something clearly the American people want more debate on. And the question is, is leadership willing to have that debate? There's so much, there, there's little difference between what Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and, yeah. My, and Mitch McConnell and, and other Republican leaders feel about the issue.
5: Yeah, this is why I say we have an oligarchy right now. The centralization of power means that there are basically three, four, five people at most are really deciding things. It's the leaders of the parties in in Congress, and it's the president of the United States. Those people are deciding everything, and they don't even want these other coalitions to form. They're trying to prevent me from working with progressives on issues where we align. They're trying to prevent other conservatives from working with, with liberals or progressives on a whole host of issues. They don't want those coalitions because they know that we might be able to form majorities. For a long time, I was working on surveillance issues, trying to prevent the the federal government from spying on the American people, and they would go out of their way as a unit. Mm -hmm. Nancy Pelosi would team up with Paul Ryan or John Boehner and the president of the United States, whether it was uh, Obama or Trump. They'd all team up every time to stop us because they knew that we could put together a majority if they just let the process work out.
1: Yeah, what it feels like often is that the goal of bipartisanship as it's commonly understood in the broader media is to obscure the fact that there are pluralities of Americans that agree about a whole host of issues. But the two-party system keeps people broken down into believing that there's about a 50-50 split on everything and that there cannot be compromise um, at all. And and that is why I think these kinds of moments, these forced-the-vote moments, are so important because they thrust to the foreground all of these opportunities for coalitional politics, which as Americans, we are just not that familiar with because we have been so trapped in this, in this two-party system. Um, I, I, I want to ask you, when you do look at some of these issues. Front of mind for me is the fact that Nancy Pelosi has quietly killed—some the say designed to kill—this um, bill that would have prevented Congress members from trading stocks, insider trading. This is, again, something that overwhelming America, numbers of Americans agree about. Nobody thinks that Congress members should be becoming millionaires in office from trading on information that is uh, insider information. It gets killed. Nobody noticed. She basically doesn't have to bring any of these uh, bills to to vote on the floor and can secret them away in this way. Given that there's this conversation going on right now, do you think that these... 20 or so people who are, are, are being rebellious from the, Demo- uh, the Republican Party should be foregrounding some of those populist concerns instead of focusing on some of these procedural, administrative, albeit important. Or
0: almost personal concerns. Or,
1: or these personal vendettas. <laughs> seems like the they don't like involved. McCarthy is what
0: they're putting <laughs> yeah, front like, and center.
1: Why, why not run on some of this? Why not foreground Ukraine? Why not foreground the extent to which there's corruption in Congress?
5: Yeah, I, and I think this is a strategic mistake that a lot of people make when they talk about process. I talk about process all the time. But you have to tie the process to these substantive outcomes. Mm -hmm. So when you go and speak to a left-leaning audience, for example, talk to them about the issues they care about and how the process is stopping us from getting to those issues. It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with them on the issue. Mm-hmm. For example, I might have a whole host of disagreements with a town hall full of people from the left who are angry about one issue or another, but what I want to say to them is, look, I want your issue to be brought to the floor so we can all debate it. Yeah, We should at least mm-hmm. be able to discuss it. You're telling me you want this thing, I might disagree with you, but let's at least bring it to the floor. And what's happening is the leaders of these two parties are saying, no, we don't want contentious things brought to the floor because that requires actual democracy, actual representative government, actual debate, actual amendments, actual discovery of the outcome. They don't want that. They want it all controlled. And at the end of the day, it's about their own power. They want to stay in power, and the way they stay in power is by t- by maintaining their majority, if they are the sp- Speaker. And so they don't want any funny business. That's why they say no amendments on the House floor, because they know as soon as they allow a whole bunch of amendments on the House floor, people are taking tough votes, yeah. and that may get them in trouble. And that means that the person who's Speaker, or who will be Speaker, might not be Speaker again. Yeah,
1: better mm. to have a 4,000-page omnibus omnibus bill that leadership— on both parties, negotiates in private together and thrust on Mm. people uh, days before a holiday.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Plausible deniability. Astonishing. Uh, Well, former Representative Amash, thank you so much for peeling back the curtain a little bit. (laughs) Thanks so much. It was fun. Yeah. We'll have more Rising right after this. Well, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has pled not guilty to charges of fraud. If convicted, the disgraced whiz kid could go to jail for up to 115 years. His trial is expected to start on October 2nd of this year.
1: Yesterday in court, Bankman Freed's attorney, who also represented Jelaine Maxwell, successfully argued to keep secret the identity of two signatories who backed the former CEO's $250 million bail, which he was released on just before Christmas. The photo... Went around the Internet uh, of him sitting in first class, uh, cruising home for the holidays in the midst of all of the airport kerfuffle that everybody else is dealing with. That should have, have, have a been a requirement for the bail.
0: He's not allowed to fly first class. <laughs> right?
1: I mean, the injustice of it, The you know, this is what people have been saying about bail reform for years, that whether or not you get out has, is not— Uh, calibrated to the crime that you actually did or the the safety risk or even flight risk oftentimes, but simply whether or not you're money. But it's supposed to be
0: flight risk. Now, I I would have thought, I guess they could be wrong. (laughs) I would have have thought he is something of a flight risk, perhaps. Uh, He's someone with resources, and uh, he
1: was living in the Bahamas. Yeah, well, I believe he does have an an ankle monitor, doesn't Mm. he? I mean, Which I think is an an intervention that could be used in a lot of these kinds of of cases. Uh, But a lot of people... Simply can't okay. afford
0: it. Yeah, and attaching an ankle, again, I, I could be wrong here, I suppose, but I, I would think attaching an ankle monitor is cheaper than the cost of housing and feeding prisoners for weeks yeah. and months and sometimes years, and they wait in Rikers for trial.
1: Yeah,
2: so. especially
1: if they have to get special digs the way Sam maegman apparently had when he was in the Bahamas and not with the uh, general population. Hmm. So here's the thing. He's pled not guilty. What do you make of that? Uh, you think this is just, you know— what you do to mount a good defense, make the government prove its case. It does seem a little bit interesting given that um, his girlfriend seems to have flipped on him immediately without any coercion, and she knows all. You know? What do you think is gonna happen here?
0: Well, I, I believe they could still reach some kind of deal, uh, even, you know, it's, you can reach a deal all the way up until the point of the verdict being read, right? So this doesn't mean that he won't eventually change that plea or work something out. Um, it, it, it could mean, you know, may he, maybe he's going for the kind of high-risk, uh, high high-reward strategy. Mm-hmm. You plead not guilty. I mean, you actually go to court. The governments could screw up. You know, key witnesses could change their mind or contradict themselves. There could be a procedural issue where he gets he gets out. That could happen. I, it could. I, happen. On the strength of the case, I think he's likely to be found guilty. We were, but something his, funny could happen. His
1: girlfriend isn't just a girlfriend. She was yeah. CEO of Alameda, so she was CEO of the uh, the hedge fund that's at the root of all of this fraud.
0: No, to be clear, I think the case against him is going to be staggeringly, uh, exhaustively uh, sufficient to convict him, but. Strange things can happen.
1: Yeah, his. Uh, we should mention that his co-founder at FTX, Gary Wang, was also arrested, and he also pleaded guilty uh, along with uh, SBF's girlfriend. So again, there's no shortage of informants here who are kind of at the core of the alleged fraud. Well, we should mention that so far,
0: you know, in all his discussions with the media and his, his willingness to talk about the case, he has suggested—and I, I don't know what his psychological profile is, I could just speculate based on what I hear him say, based on watching him give interviews—that he should not be. Giving that that are contrary okay. to what all legal advice would be, so it, it could be that he's truly convinced himself that he's innocent or that he'll be found innocent, and 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 so he is proceeding along this path with that assumption in mind. Perhaps ignoring or not listening to advice from attorneys saying, "No, you will be found guilty. You should make some yeah. uh, some kind of deal." Could be in his head, he doesn't that doesn't compute for him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I am curious about the role his parents, who are both attorneys, not. Criminal defense attorneys, I believe his dad is a a tax uh, attorney or a law professor at Stanford. Um, What the role that they've been playing in advising him. him, They don't want him to make a deal. (laughs) They want him to be guilty (laughs) and go to jail so it doesn't reflect on them, right? No, I mean, I I wonder if sometimes when you're too close to it, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the whole thing about doctors shouldn't operate on their patients. That maybe he's been getting some bad legal advice from them throughout this. But now he's retained real counsel. It is Jelaine Maxwell's counsel which is an interesting quirk of all of this. Um, There's only
0: so many characters in this narrative drama of our lives. So you have to reuse the same characters. Uh, apparently.
1: I mean, on some level, like, it, it speaks to the resources that the Bankman Freeds have to get such a high-profile and famous um, attorney. But all of that aside, like I, it does feel like from the interviews that he's been given, perhaps unwisely and perhaps at the advice of his overly confident yeah. lawyer perhaps, <laughs> Perhaps. That he's mounting yeah, this kind of, like, Gosh, gee willikers, I really didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an innocent babe in the woods defense. And it's frustrating to watch because even if it were true, if, I'm, if I were to walk through a public sphere swinging a mace around my head, killing people left and right, and just, oh, You're I didn't know that now? was the, the effective oh. blunt force trauma that I would hurt people by doing this incredibly dangerous activity, nobody would buy it for an instant. I do think that sometimes with financial crimes, because the lay public is so ignorant and, and, just, and, and judges are so generally ignorant— of what goes on in these institutions, everyone's ignorant of what goes on. I believe the battle high mace does
0: one d eight damage in uh, What's that? The Dungeons and Dragons. Oh I was
1: about to say, like you're questioning my mace analogy when you're the king of Dungeons and Dragons. I, I teed that one up for you, Robbie.
0: Uh, Sam Bateman fried should just get up on the stand and, and be like, crypto, what even is that? How does it work? I don't know. Like, N- none of you know.
1: I like dare anyone
0: to explain out. it. <laughs> you must acquit unless you can Look, explain it.
1: Unfortunately, in my limited experience as a, a corporate attorney, oftentimes I do think that people get away with not quite murder, but the financial equivalent because of broad ignorance, ignorance of the people who are reviewing documents and not actually knowing how frauds are executed, ignorance in the court system of not really understanding, well, you know, what really is good business judgment because I'm not in the business. Um, that, that seems like plausible to me. Therefore, I'm going to allow that kind of behavior, even though insiders um, know it was reckless and absent a smoking gun email that says, I knew that making this business decision was bad and I decided to do it anyway, which most people outside of SBF at least, are <laughs> smart enough not to commit that kind of thing to print or say that kind of thing out loud in the interviews. Well, they get away with murder. So we'll see what happens.
0: We, we shall see. <laughs> Love the battle mace. Love the battle mace analogy. <laughs> More Rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Over the past year, parents of young children have faced major shortages, including diapers, baby formula, and the antibiotic amoxicillin. Now, these same parents are having difficulty tracking down children's pain medicines, including Motrin, Tylenol, and Advil. The American Academy of Pediatricians says the shortage is most likely a result of the, quote, demic, a term used to refer to the rise in cases of COVID, flu, and RSV, which increases the demand for common cold medications.
1: Joining us now to weigh in on this is Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute and General Surgeon Jeffrey Singer and Director of Project Strike Wave, Rebecca Parson. Welcome to you both. Thanks Happy for having here. us. Now, Jeffrey, I'll start with you. You know, why are we in this situation to begin with? We have seen, as Robbie mentioned in the the introduction there, a number of shortages over the past year. It seemed like a lot of the shortages that were COVID-related with respect to protective gear, uh, the shortages with monkeypox uh, with respect to the vaccine that simply just wasn't kept on hand because of cost concerns, apparently, should have really highlighted at this point that it's almost like a national security concern for us not to have these things on hand. And of course, a public health concern. Why do we keep ending up in this situation?
4: Well, in this particular case, it, it's largely related to an unexpected surge in demand from the so-called triple-demic. We saw this shortage actually start earlier in Canada, earlier in the fall before it came to the United States. And uh, it's the triple-demic, by the way, is overhyped. RSV cases spiked over a month ago and have been steadily coming down. This is the normal time of year for the flu season, it usually peaks in about February, and the number of flu cases are not out of the ordinary. It's just that we haven't had many flu cases for a couple of years. And as far as COVID cases are concerned in some areas of the country, again, they're heading down, but even though they did bump up a little, it's nothing compared to where it was before we had this mass vaccination and immunization in, in this country in the early days of the pandemic. So what happened is it created a panic and there's a lot of panic buying much like in the early days of the COVID pandemic, there was this shortage of toilet paper and, uh, and, and so, because the manufacturers tell us they don't have a shortage of raw materials, they just didn't anticipate this big surge in demand. Also, when it comes to amoxicillin, you know, this has been a, a, a common problem worldwide in the developed world where doctors, I hate to say this about my own profet- peers, but we have a tendency to over-prescribe antibiotics for viral illnesses. And amoxicillin, for example, doesn't treat uh, RSV or, or influenza, although it does treat secondary bacterial infections that people can get on, on top of it so there's been this tendency to just throw antibiotics uh, with every viral illness and the World Health Organization has actually asked doctors to kind of be more frugal because this is leading to the development of a lot of strains of bacteria that are resistant to the common antibiotics making it difficult to treat bacterial infections So again with this with the the uh, the, the increased number of respiratory, viral infections these last few months that we're seeing uh, we're seeing an increase in a number of doctors prescribing amoxicillin and uh, again it's just stressing uh, it's an unexpected surge in demand which will be met by by the manufacturers. Hmm.
0: Rebecca what do you think is going on here and and what uh, policies uh, do you think need to be discussed for making sure that people can get medicine that they need?
2: Well, while there are particular factors playing into what's happening right now, we've seen this as a trend over the past several years where uh, early in the pandemic, People were rushing to get, you know, toilet paper, to get supplies, and they ran out. Um, The vaccines, for example, and COVID tests. Uh, Rich people, celebrities were able to get them before regular people. Uh, Politicians were able to get them before everybody else. Now we have this uh, so-called triple-demic, and uh, apparently, you know, we have all the raw materials and supplies we need to make these drugs, yet we don't have enough of them. And it's predictable uh, that people, that RSV would be going around, that the flu would be going around, that the COVID would be going around. And so it's really indicative of the healthcare system we have where it's not structured or planned in a way to actually take care of people's needs to ensure that kids with strep can actually get amoxicillin to treat their strep uh, to, you know, 75% of pediatric beds are currently full. Instead of having a healthcare system that is carefully planned to address those needs, we have one that is just goes you know, is jerked to and fro this way and that by the whims of pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, and what they think is going to make them the most short-term profit. And for example, uh, countries like Canada, France, UK are either have already either already approved imports of their the drugs that they have a shortage of, or they're in the process of considering it and planning it. And so, why isn't that happening here? Um, we had countries like India during the pandemic, and I think currently as well, um, retained more of the drugs than at uh, um that they would normally export so that they could take care of their population. And, uh, you know, Corinne Jean-Pierre said, the FDA does not manufacture drugs and cannot require a pharmaceutical company to make more of a ju- drug or change the distribution of a drug. Well, why not? <laughs> it's the government, it's our public money that funds the research and development of these drugs. And then when we need it, we can't get it. So while there are particular factors that change, you know, what's happening now versus what happened two years ago, this overall structure of our 4 that healthcare system is ultimately what's causing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Singer, to that point, yeah. you know, even if everything that you say, let's just accept it that it is true that there is an exaggerated um, emphasis on this triple Demic, that people are panic buying, et cetera. The, the fact remains that parents are struggling to get this medication. Yeah. So even if that is predictable and that's all built in and that's a common response, a human behavioral response to these kinds of moments, isn't there some obligation, um, per what Rebecca is saying, to provide for that, either by requiring, doing more advanced planning, requiring more um, stock to be on hand for citizens to avail themselves on, or to do something on the other end, that's a kind of government troll where you prevent people from overbuying. Either way, doesn't isn't some kind of um, government intervention in order? Uh,
4: yeah, I think they tried that in the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries in, in the 1960s, 50s, et cetera. First of all, like I like to say, once again, I'll reiterate, this problem is also not unique to our system. We're seeing this in Canada as well. As far as getting tests out and getting vaccines out, that was centrally planned like it would be. In, in, a, in a socialist country, the government paid for and distributed the vaccines. And because the government was doing it, the distribution was politicized. So, for example, in some countries, uh, they gave the vaccine to the more vulnerable people first. In in our country, actually, it was given to people with so-called essential jobs, which, again, that becomes subject to politics. Uh, government doesn't make things. Government distributes things. Uh, and uh, I would I would say uh to Nora that this is, uh, I mean, to, to Rebecca, I'm sorry. I would say that um, everybody knows how to do their own special thing. Politicians know how, of course, to deal with uh, political and social events, but manufacturers know how to make things. And the market is what, through the pricing system, you know, the, the, we haven't repealed the law of supply and demand. That's still a basic economic law. This is high school economics. When there's an increase in demand, uh, then the price usually goes up, which makes the supply respond to demand and eventually we reach equilibrium. And that's what's in the process of happening right now. You can't expect a committee of politicians to sit around and figure out what, who needs what, when, and to anticipate unanticipatable events. I don't think anybody expected the number of, R- the, the, the number of RSV cases and flu cases and COVID cases all be appearing at the same time even though it makes sense that they would because people were not exposed to RSV and influenza very much over the last couple of years, so it makes sense that they'd all get it now. But I don't think this is something you could anticipate. You can't punish people for not being omniscient.
0: Yeah, Re- Rebecca, I guess the question is why would government uh, regulators or government planners have a better mastery of the right amount of the supply or who should get it or what or so forth than the people who make the drugs?
2: Well, it's not so much about asking politicians to just go with a vibe check and say, hey, maybe we need some more medication over there, some more of that over there. You know, they bring in the experts who advise them and then government agencies employ planning to ensure that all the medication that is needed in particular places for particular populations is available. And if it's true that centrally planned healthcare systems don't work, then why has our life expectancy declined to 76 years while China's has increased uh, up to uh, 78 years and Cuba's life expectancy has increased to 79 years uh, despite them going through the same pandemic that we have. And so it's not about politicians, uh, you know, exercising control or something they have no expertise in. Um, I would say what politicians have expertise in is uh, graft corruption and, uh, you know, spending six to eight hours of their day dialing for dollars instead of taking care of the people who, you know, elected them and need them to take care of, of the population and what we need. I, I agree, and Rebecca.
4: So you want to put them in charge of distributing goods and services, well, that's you the same saying, people?
1: Let me ask you this, Dr. Singer, you evoked supply and demand, but the problem Mm -hmm. here is that supply and demand, that basic economic principle that you just described, is Mm -hmm. not working. And the role of economics and uh, economists, generally speaking, is to address the fact that so often we have these failures in our society, because especially for life-sustaining care, the kinds of which these parents who cannot get medication for their children, I don't want to lose sight of what we're talking about here, we're talking about a world where for whatever reason, parents are not able to get life-sustaining care for their children, and the question is: Do we leave that up to the markets, or do we say the reason that the markets aren't um, satisfying the need right now is because when you have a fully profit-driven system, if there, there's no such thing as getting an excess amount, just having some on on, on standby just in case, because the calculation is. If prices go up when there's a run on supply, then the, the corporations they get paid anyway. But isn't part so why of the, make, why make well, extra part of the reason for
0: that? that and maybe you can speak to this, Doctor Singer, that the FDA actually stands in the way of approving other drugs, like yeah, things that are available in that, Europe again, that should be available here but are not. But go ahead.
1: But that's not that's the case. With, but that's not that what's going on it, with it, these uh, Advil and Amoxicillin, yes, right? It yes, it is.
4: Yes, it is. If Advil if, is being in America approved, Advil is a brand. It's ibuprofen. There are a lot of other brands of ibuprofen and acetaminophen and, and different antibiotics that are approved by FDA equivalents in, in the European Union, in Canada, in the UK, in Israel, in, in well, Japan. I'm sorry, Australia. doctor. These and are generic the FDA drugs FDA doesn't we're allow talking them about. to be sold here.
1: But, but, but well, Doctor, we're talking about generic drugs. You're arguing that people—the that the problem is that companies no. can't produce ibuprofen, and that's why there's a shortage yeah. of ibuprofen right yes, now? Yes, <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. The FDA okay. does
4: not allow— Drugs that are produced in other developed countries and approved by their regulatory agencies to be sold in the United States unless they approve them separately. And uh, a very good way to, uh, so that's again the government standing in the way. It's the same thing when it comes to uh, the baby formula. The FDA wouldn't allow, there was no shortage of baby formula in Europe, but the FDA wouldn't allow European baby formula to be sold here because they didn't approve. Of the labeling for the use of the baby formula in the United States. Well, it was a little more. Have that problem.
1: It was a little more complicated than that, Dr. Singer. I agree. Look, I have no issue with as long as it's safe, which I think is a is a weird thing for everyone to be skipping over. But as long as it is, in fact, safe, there's a reason why our FDA is considered a gold standard in other countries, and we don't have necessarily the same repro- reciprocity with everyone. And the everyone. British equivalent I, isn't? I, I do think that there are places where there should be that kind of reciprocity. I, I have no interest in arguing against that. But it does seem to be that there's a real cavalier attitude happening right now about other kinds of interventions. It seems like you're cherry-picking very specific kinds of interventions that only are those that you think are, uh, uh, satisfy a kind of laissez-faire economic model and not put putting any accountability on the fact that we as a public health for public health reasons want to let's say manufacture more baby formula and crucial things like protective gear in the United States of America so they're not subject to the supply chain crisis and other things that have caused there to be these kinds of uh, access issues in, in the past. Rebecca I want to give you a chance to get in here.
2: Yeah, supply and demand doesn't work for critical (laughs) supplies that are needed for life. That's why we have 11 million empty homes, yet we have a so-called housing shortage, according to the corporate media, and we have almost a million uh, homeless people. That's why we have uh, stuff like amoxicillin, which is approved by the FDA, which can be produced and is not being produced to the levels that we need it. Supply and demand doesn't work when you have profit conflicting with human needs and stuff that is needed to keep people. Alive, and uh, so it just it doesn't make sense to to bring that into the argument. Leave supply and demand to iPhone and bubble gums. Why can we bubble gum? Like why can we get iPhones? I can go to the Apple store and get an iPhone, but I can't get a That's supply and demand. Well, you need a prescription.
4: Supply and demand get... is why we have a housing shortage too, because government we. don't have a housing. H- how shortage. many houses can be That's built? That's a lie. We, I, we have ho- we have a homeless problem because zoning and and other restrictions on on, on the true. building of homes and building of, of housing places have restricted have the supply of housing. Homes.
1: Yeah, so after, no here, housing Here's the choice. thing. Well, not in again, California
4: where the homeless people again, are. Again, I don't I don't have an no, issue with,
1: with changing. San Francisco. I also don't have an issue with changing housing laws, but that that seems to again to be sidestepping the point. Supply so and wait a minute. Supply and demand, the most fundamental obvious lie that, I'm sorry, economics 101, every child knows, that willingness to pay doesn't equal ability to pay. Supply and demand pretends like everyone who has a need can afford to satisfy that need. And the fact that there's over $80 billion of medical debt outstanding that was before the pandemic proves exactly that people who need life-sustaining, life-saving medical care can't, in fact, afford it. Which is why whatever you think about government intervention and socialism and different context, the majority of Americans agree that their ability to stay alive and get the health care that they need to save their lives and the lives of their family shouldn't come down to how much money they have in the bank. So the question is, do you think, doctor, that there should be interventions on behalf of the government to ensure that there is um, a supply of these basic medications yes. for children right now? Yes, I right do. you think
4: the FDA should get out of the way and allow American consumers to consume All sorts of medications that are not available to Americans, Americans who can afford to sometimes fly to other countries to get these medications because the Food and Drug Administration, which is controlled by experts and decisions are made by committees of politicians who are not motivated by profit. And they 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 have delayed so many medications from becoming available to people, including generics, generic drugs that can meet meet this, the the demand that we have right now that are not permitted to be sold in this country. And I'm not just talking about drugs; I'm talking about baby formula. So, Doctor, yes, if, we, if, if, I if think that plan we is did, implemented, that. if that plan is implemented, and there
1: are, if 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 the government disappears and we have laissez-faire economics. As we did in feudalism, and people are still dying and suffering and not accessing their <laughs> oh medications. Just hypothetically, would you be open? Feudalism to a government- is the opposite, so the opposite of the that the European health officials, officials have. That was, maybe that would be okay. If we did everything that you want, I'm just asking as a philosophical matter because it seems like you're yeah. philosophically against the idea of the government providing medication stockpiles, anything like that.
4: So yeah, the government's if, if providing we- COVID tests. It's providing vaccines. How's it doing,
1: sir? Can I just ask this Terribly. question? If we said every we allowed everything that you wanted and still mothers and fathers of children were unable to access and afford medication the way that they are right now, are you still would you still be ideologically supposed to the government requiring that certain amounts of medication be on hand in case of emergencies like these? Or would you say we do have to try something in addition to Did, laissez-faire economics? It,
4: even if the government wanted to have a national stockpile, somebody's got to make it. It doesn't come out of the sky. You right. can't order people who don't know how to make things to make things, what? and you can't Sir. tell them how many <laughs> you're going to need them. me do do you, how the much amoxicillin are going to need next year? How much amoxicillin are the poor people living in inner-city Chicago going to need next year? Do you have any idea? I sure don't. Well, I I'm, not, know a, I'm not a public market? health...
1: Well, the market obviously doesn't, sir. That's why we're having this conversation here today. No, it does. Rebecca, it does. I wanna, Suddenly, let you... there's a
4: big surge in demand, and the market is responding. This, this, this supply is going to meet demand. If the FDA had, didn't restrict the ability of supply to come in from other countries like it does now, then the, the supply would meet demand more sir, quickly. Sir, sir, the supply is going to meet the demand.
1: You're, you're not. I don't think you're really responding to the hypothetical or to the facts on the ground, where today parents don't have access to this. But Rebecca, I want to give you a chance to respond here.
2: Yeah, supply is not meeting demand. And to say, well, well, so eventually supply and demand will meet each other. And, it, you know, if a few kids die along the way, I'm philosophically opposed to kids not getting the medication they need when we have we're the richest country on Earth. We have pharmaceutical companies making billions oh, well, okay, and billions of well, what dollars. Would you, say about, Rebecca? would you say that the
0: FDA should allow more medications in the country should be maybe as restrictive as some of our peer countries that approve these things in some cases decades before we do?
2: In some cases, the FDA should be more relaxed than it is, and in other cases, it should be less relaxed. For example, now, who
4: decides I don't think that, it's a great Rebecca? idea. You, who decides Can, when to ahead, be Rebecca. more relaxed? When it's Sorry. Because, direct, because there are no so universal
2: Rebecca. laws. It's extremely simplistic, black-and-white, childish thinking to say, but you must always do this and you must always do that. People should look at the specific situation and say, okay, this company over here, Germany has a very reputable, uh, safety-checked production system for creating amoxicillin, we can let it in. But maybe when it comes to the COVID booster, we shouldn't put that out on the market when, for humans when it's only been tested on six mice. So there's different situations where you apply human logic, not right. simplistic blanket laws. By the well, way, so we, put we, have in, we put and the and
4: bivalent I... vaccine out on the market for humans when it's only been tested on six mice because the government decided we want to get bivalent vaccines out to people. And now we're seeing evidence coming in, just a new study from the Cleveland Clinic, showing the more boosters you have, the more at risk you are to get another case of covid mm. so yeah All those right, are the well, experts making the decision not we the really
0: got to leave it there thank you so much for the spirited debate we so appreciate it thank,
4: thank you. you
0: and we'll have more rising right after this
1: Congressman-elect George Santos was exposed last month for fabricating his education and work credentials, and now he's on the hook for a crime he allegedly committed over a decade ago in Brazil. According to the New York Times, Brazilian prosecutors plan to recharge the newly elected Republican this week with fraud. Court documents show that in 2008, Santos spent $700 in a shop in Rio using a stolen checkbook and fake name.
0: Authorities in Brazil suspended the case after they failed to find Santos, who fled to the U.S. after being charged and then was elected to Congress. But given his rise in publicity here, they're now go, uh, they now know where he is. He's in the it's House right of Representatives. <laughs> and They're going to go after him. Santos is also facing local and federal investigations for having lied about his resume, but he carried on business as usual in Washington, showing up to the 118th Congress's swearing-in on Tuesday. And casting a vote in the House speakership race.
1: Yeah, we've kind of understated the level of lying in that intro there because, I mean, just to recap, he lied about his mother dying in 9 11, subsequently talked about her dying of cancer on Christmas. He lied about he his mother. He claimed she died of from 9 11. Right. So they're not entirely contradictory yeah. statements, but the implication of dying from 9 11 is tower. clearly. Yeah, yeah. Um, He has at one point claimed to be Jewish and later revised and said, I'm Jewish, <laughs> which my Jewish friends loved joking about over the holidays. Um, it's he, a very
0: Seinfeld kind <laughs> of, kind right? of
1: thing. <laughs> you know, at one point, he, he there was a tweet where he claimed to be half black, half white. Who knows? I mean, those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. There are. You know, you know uh, Malcolm Gladwell and people like that out there in the world. But the point is that there has been such a jumble of lies that had not stopped, including people pointed out that he released a statement saying that he had been sworn into Congress. Of course, because of all of the Michigans going on with Kevin McCarthy, nobody has been sworn into Congress. I don't know if that was just an administrative mistake. Yeah. The letter was going to go out and nobody stopped it. But it does.
0: I think that one's forgivable. It, but <laughs> it, it, it's
1: a, it's a funny little cherry on top of all of this.
0: Yes. Uh, so there was a lot of footage, obviously, of the vote going down in the house yesterday and uh, he looked pretty pretty friendless
1: pretty pretty lone. didn't not exactly the bell of the ball nobody would talk to him uh, everyone avoided him like the plague i think there was one congress member who went up and started talking to him and it was clear that as soon as he introduced himself And the congressman knew, the congressperson knew who he was, pivoted and got out of there, like, quick, quick as they possibly could.
0: Well, one former member of Congress who had a lot to say to George Santos was Tulsi Gabbard, who grilled him about his slew of lies when she filled in for conservative host Tucker Carlson on Fox News late last week. Here's a little bit of that exchange.
2: A lie is not an embellishment on a resume. You said you worked at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup but they've said, we've got no record of this guy working for us. You've said you've gone to and graduated from these universities, but they've said, well, we've got no record of that. These are blatant lies and it calls into question how your constituents and the American people can believe anything that you may say when you are standing on the floor of the House of Representatives, supposedly fighting for them. That's the real issue here.
3: Well, look, and I, I agree with what you're saying. And as I stated, and I continue, we can debate my my resume and how i worked with firms such as Goldman. is it and debatable or, or is it just false but,
2: no is it it's debatable very, no, or it's is very it just debatable false?
3: i no I, no it's not false at all it's it's debatable i can i can sit down and explain to you what you can do in private equity in in capital intro via servicing limited partners and general partners and we can have this discussion that's going to go way above the american people's head but that's not what i campaigned on i campaigned on delivering results wow. for the american people by, by lowering inflation i can sit down and if you want to have that discussion i'd be glad to tulsi to explain that to you C- and make sure that we, we we settle the score
1: I love that the response to, you know, did you lie about going to college, did you lie about getting these degrees was, look, if you want me to explain about derivatives, I can explain about derivatives, as though that's the point. And you've really got to give Tulsi a lot of credit. She
0: flayed him mm-hmm. living. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he thought that because it's Fox mm-hmm. and Fox is, is a conser- it has a lot of conservative personalities that they would be friendlier to him as a Republican. Um, I, I don't know that Tucker would have been any, any friendlier than her, but she was. She was really great. She was she, really she great. Was,
1: she was giving. I'm sorry, like Democratic primary 2019 vibes yes. when she destroyed Kamala Harris on the debate stage. She has that thing that's like a high tolerance for awkwardness or something, mm-hmm. like a high tolerance for confrontation. Where a lot of people, when their their prey starts flipping on the line and getting kind of wiggly, they'll back off. They think, okay, we got him. Everyone sees what's what's happening. She will drill down and give follow up question after follow up question. Sanders at one point tried to argue, well, look, I have problems, but look look at what Joe Biden has done. The Democrats are even worse. And Tulsa to her credit, despite you know this kind of ideological transition or at least partisan transition that she's in. It's like, that is not the point. This is not a conversation we're having right now about criticism of Democrats. We can criticize Democrats all day and night. That was an easy out for her, especially in the context of this Fox News program. She said, no, you ran on various promises and commitments to the people of your district. You are accountable to them outside of what the Democratic Party is doing. And honestly, I wish we saw more of that advocacy for mm-hmm. constituents and, and voters uh, more often on television.
0: It is true that you know George Santos is not the first person to tell lies and become elected to Congress. Many people tell lies while they're in Congress. Right. Uh, there's been serial resume inflation um, even on the part of very high-profile political figures who are still you know in the good graces of the mainstream and elites including Joe Biden himself and Hillary Clinton and everybody else Donald Trump of course uh, so much of that going on so maybe it's interesting I guess his are so blatant or were so, or so we're so immediately contradicted that uh, this has become a, a, a recurring story or not a, not a quickly fading away story yeah or it's, it's interesting to people in some way but this is this, this is not the exception This is the norm.
1: Yeah, it's also a little weird that there is so much energy behind this and that Democrats seem to have been able to stick the landing on making this guy a pariah when they couldn't do it at all with Donald Trump, despite a lot of very obvious lies, disprovable statements, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what it is. Is it the the volume of the lying from Trump, the fact that he had a lot of charisma that George Santos just simply does not have, Um, you know, the fact that uh, he never, like, apologized or kind of admitted anything that was wrong. Donald Trump was an amazing case study and how, like, doubling down and pushing forward can get you out of a lot of traditional media cycles of accountability and kind of, like, Mm -hmm. public embarrassment. I I don't know what's going on, but it is remarkable how no one really is trying to defend George Santos at this point and how much traction this story has gotten with normies. I was was writing a cab the other day. Yes, I was writing a cab the other day listening to a story on the radio. This woman was playing a news story about the McCarthy stuff. And she turns it down, completely unrelated to what was happening on the radio. And is like, "Have you heard about this George Santos thing?" Oh. I was like, "What?" I mean, yes. And she she seemed to just be
0: cab driver penetration. <laughs> that's that's uh, you can't argue with that.
1: Yeah. It- It's wild. Whatever Democrats uh, are doing, they're doing right, and they should take a lesson from this. But if the lesson is just uh, George Santos is that wild of a candidate, I don't know that there's a lot to take. Well,
0: but they should have done it six months ago. Yeah,
1: they they should have. (laughs) Now, some of the story, the part of the story where people ask the question why the media didn't get on this earlier, and the New York Times, I believe it was New York Times- uh, writers responded, well, why don't you go and do some reporting? I mean, there clearly was some negligence here. Apparently, his opponent was given a file that contained this information that kind of buried deep, I don't know, if 25 pages or so is what you would call it buried Yeah, deep. it was a
0: comms failing on the part of that Democrat staffer. And apparently, a local news had covered this in some detail, but it just didn't get any pickup, yeah. which is interesting. Uh,
1: that's another, that's a whole other story yeah. about the limitations of uh, and lack of funding that local news gets, but uh, I'm sure there'll be more on this George Santos. Saga, and we'll continue to follow it right here on Rising. More after this. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is under scrutiny and is being accused of censorship for passing a law that would grant his government the okay to block news websites. Ukraine's parliament passed the legislation in the final days of 2022.
0: Or under the new law, Ukraine's state broadcasting council would have greater power, allowing it to regulate television, print, and online media, and even social media networks like YouTube. According to Kiev Independent, the Kiev Independent, this is not the first time Zelensky has moved to exert more control over the media there. A 2019 law gave the media council power to issue media licenses, Or to revoke them, the new law expands the scope of existing legislation and was allegedly implemented to combat Russia Russian propaganda as the war in Ukraine rages on. So this is not the first time uh, we've discussed this. Uh, Zelensky violating basic civil liberties and free speech protections in a manner that should uh, concern everyone, especially should concern his vociferous supporters in uh, the Western world and in Western media. Uh, and among Democratic and some many Republican politicians as well, look, we're saying there are moral stakes to this conflict, and I agree that there are moral uh, stakes, that Russia is an autocratic country with a very corrupt and authoritarian government that has launched this unconscionable war, but the more Zelensky does things like this, the more the Ukrainian government comes to resemble the very sort of autocracy we're ostensibly trying to prevent.
1: Yeah, this is the thing. If the line is simply... You can't invade another country's borders. Russia started an illegal war. Therefore, we have to defend Ukraine. Nothing here changes that. Mm -hmm. But we all know that the argument has been expanded well beyond that. And it's about um, regime change in Russia. It's about advancing democracy. And in, in promoting that rhetorical project, Democrats and, you know, establishment Republicans have really held up Ukraine as this kind of bastion of Western ideology uh, in the Eastern part of Europe in a way that completely does not gel with the reality on the ground. And when you look back to reporting on Ukraine before this particular conflict, you got a lot more of a clear-eyed uh, description of the corruption in in the country, of the influence of Nazism in the country. A lot of people were just talking about the celebration of Bandera, who's a kind of a national figure of sorts over the past week, who was a, a not I do don't know how else to say it—who, you know, was a, a, a Nazi, a sympathetic Nazi figure. So, you know, all of these things can exist in a country. Obviously, there's a diversity of politics and interests and beliefs in the United States of America, and the same is true everywhere else. And saying that doesn't mean anything about whether or not you should have an interest in defending what Russia's doing or that Russia is a good guy at any of this or anything like that. But it is frustrating that there still seems to be this very heavy-handed, jingoistic portrait of Ukraine being painted Mm -hmm. that justifies doing more than just defending Ukraine. It justifies this regime change operation. And
0: Zelensky is being one is one of the most celebrated figures of modern times right now he 's being hailed as like a modern George Washington or Abraham Lincoln, although of course Abraham Lincoln suspended habeas corpus and <laughs> imposed a draft right so so never never meet your heroes um, and and that speaks to how wartime you know, the first death of—the of in the first casualty in war, well, they say it's the truth, but it's also civil liberties and mm-hmm. free speech and all sorts of other things. So I, that's not necessarily surprising. I think it's still something to lament uh, and, and really, you know, confuses a little bit what's even—not not what they're fighting for, but what we're doing in our, in our uh, support of them. Uh, from from a distance or the, the yeah. moral case.
1: I think the folks over at uh, Useful Idiots uh, podcast had a bit where they supercut all of the times Zelensky had been referred to as uh, a Churchill-like figure over the course of his uh, visit to Congress uh, over the past week. Um, we all were treated to the images of him. I great. guess
0: that's not a compliment coming <laughs> from that source.
1: <laughs> no, but they're, they're pointing out how um, how like weirdly aggrandizing the coverage has mm-hmm. been randomly pulling random historical figures from the ether and analogizing them to Zelensky in a way that it probably isn't warranted, doesn't really make a lot of sense, is, is intended to fluff him up, as it were, um, and how ridiculous that kind of propaganda has been. And we, we saw him with the flag draped over the dais in Congress. And the, it, it's not that any one aspect of it is a problem per se, but taken in total, it 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 betrays, I think, a failure to critically look at what our role is in the conflict. Because if you think it is nothing but this moral crusade, then anything will justify it. You know, a blank check mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, and framing it as as a kind of World War II posture, which many of us have been brought up to believe was the critical existential war, the war in which America was most... Faultless and on the right side of things, despite there being some you know historical complications about why and when we got into it and what took us so long, da, da, da. You know, it's framing it in those terms very clearly is a propagandistic effort to justify whatever the deep state wants to do in the situation. I think that's very dangerous.
0: Yeah, and speaking of that, you know, we, we should keep in mind as we condemn what, uh, what Zelensky is doing here, uh, uh, closing, you know, stifling dissent and preventing uh, Russian sources from speaking, that is something where we don't now have a lot of uh, ground to stand on, as we're seeing in these Twitter files, the constant efforts by government actors, by law enforcement, and by political figures to pressure social media companies, um, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, and, and others— to uh, to restrict content uh, sourced to Russia, I- imputing that it was nefarious or all part of efforts by the Russian government, even when these own social media sites were looking and saying, "No,
1: it's right. not what that is." Right. Exactly.
0: So it's it's very it it shows you how how slippery this stuff can be, even in a country that has a robust a very robust First Amendment to really offer ex- incredible protection sure. of dissenting speech. Uh, but we, we really got to look at whether we're coming close to violating that or or have and in fact are well over the line
1: yeah and look even if you disagree with the content that's run by a program like RT which is one of Mm -hmm. the the sites that got taken down in the course of this Twitter Twitter files covered purge um it is important to understand what people who do not share your ideological beliefs, people, even if you think it's propaganda, whatever it is, it's important to know what they're saying because you have to be able to combat alternative narratives. When you shut down any and all dissent, you do get yourself into a place where people are in a North Korea-ish posture, where they don't even have the tools to understand what the rest, how the rest of the world sees them and what's going on. And I would hope that we're not so fragile or so vulnerable as a community that we think, one website, an RT, is an existential threat to America, given the huge corporate media op- apparatus and the, frankly, propaganda that comes out of all of these media institutions. We all have our biases. Mm.
0: Well, that does it for right now. But later today, former Michigan Representative Justin Amash will join us in studio to discuss the results of the speaker vote so far. We don't know right now if we'll have a speaker or not. And then that will post very shortly after the vote's being taken. Tomorrow, I will be out. I've got a jury duty sentence I could not get out of this time. Uh, But you're in good hands because Baccia Ungar-Sargon will be here with Brianna.
1: All right. Well, we'll miss you, Robbie. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and you can catch us on Roku and other streaming services. See you later. Bye-bye.